You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Tonight, you can buy their books over there at that table, and we won't let you pass without 
now flaming flare. <laughs> um, so, I'm going to read my Wayne poem. Um, it's called True Crime, and it's based off of a really joyous uh, triple homicide murder uh, that happened in Connecticut. So, everything I said before, don't think about it, because it's kind of bad. So, this is True Crime. In the home invasion, the husband meets the baseball bat. The three women go up with the house. For 30 minutes, the police watch, do absolutely nothing. Everyone wishes the outcome to be so different. The case could have been prevented at many times. The rape, strangulation, pouring of gasoline. I've been watching true crime, still not afraid of strangers. The killer is usually family, close, love, known. When the beauty queen was discovered bludgeoned, garroted, body on stage, the fingers all pointed inside of the house. I tried to rationalize abject crime, my fascination. Both, adult, both have always been around. I love the idea of what is impossible for myself. When I pop the razor from under my tongue and think it over, the simplest explanation, I revolve around danger. Talking to strangers, a white mane grows out my feet. It's hard to keep a story straight. The horses want to get loose. In the home invasion, the mother says they're nice men to the bank teller. She returns to the rape, strangulation, pouring of gasoline. The story, all at once, is pointless. There is a luxury to being alive. In my life, there's nothing wrong. I want to light it on fire. I'm a weapon with no safety. When I enter a room, I must go off. I'm going to introduce uh, Celeste Stokes. She is the editor of Not Without Our Laughter. And after that, you're going to hear from the other members of the Black Ladies Brunch Collective. Terry Cross Davis, Anya Creighton, Katie Ritchie, um, Celeste herself, Saida Agostini, and Tafisha Edwards. So without further ado, I am going to introduce you, Celeste. Thank you, Stephen, for that very lovely introduction. Thank all of you for being here today. We're very grateful to the Pratt Library for having us here. Uh, this is our first official, uh, I guess you would say, unveiling of our book called Not Without Our Laughter, and we're very proud to have uh, it unveiled here today. So first of all, I'd like to do a little explanation for those of you who don't know. Uh, my collective, Black Ladies Brunch Collective, is an organization or a group of women who got together uh, purely for drinking mimosas and uh, eating egg omelets to begin with, right? And eventually uh, that spiraled into something more. We originally got together in 2014. Um, we did a panel on uh, called Not Without Our Laughter, which is based on the Langston Hughes book, uh, novel Not Without Our Laughter. That's really what the book is ripping off of, for those of you who do not know. Um, and Langston Hughes' book, if you don't know, the novel is basically uh, just talking about the fact that African-American laughter can be healing, right? And I think uh, we're at a current political time in our lives where we really do need uh, more levity, more healing, more laughter, more smiles around the world. So hopefully that's what this 
collection is about. Um, I'm a little nervous reading from it today because some of my students are in the audience, and I'm always wondering about whether or not I should read sex poems while one of my students are in the audience, right? Okay, so with that said, uh, I'd like to start off with a poem um, dedicated to someone who doesn't want to be shouted out in the back, but he's the manager of uh, Pinch Dumplings in the back, and the title of the poem is dedicated to Chino, futuristic in the back. The title of the poem is called 11 Things I've Learned While at Pinch's Trivia Night. And basically this poem is a mashup of both facts, um, of things that I realized I didn't learn, but also like tips that I think people should know about when they're gonna play trivia. And it's a list poem. 11 Things I've Learned at Pinch's Trivia Night. Number one, don't assume your husband knows all the answers, especially when it comes to pop culture. His being an avid Cavaliers fan doesn't necessarily make him a sports guru. Number two, make sure to pee long before the first round starts because trying to clinch and hold it all the way through the bonus question is futile. Number three, France is the country with the largest geographical surface area out of the whole entire EU nation. Number four, recruit family members, work colleagues, people I met six minutes ago, ex-boyfriends, just kidding, honey, vagabonds from the street, anyone who regards and retains minute details that I often find superfluous. Number five, imbibing lemon drop shots that you won during round one for a correct answer doesn't make my game any stronger, the same way an extra beer during pool seems to sink balls quicker. Number six, Another word for egg white is albumin. The albus is a Latin base that means white. The next time I'm at Starbucks, I'll be sure to ask for an albumin and cheese sandwich and see if the cashier has any clue what I'm asking for. <laughs> Number seven, Katy Perry has the most followers on Twitter, even though I guessed Taylor Swift. I was wrong for thinking that scandal draws in people like flies. Number eight, nerdy looking kids win every time. <laughs> Behind their glasses, polyester slacks, and laughs that sound like snorts lurk supernatural memory skills. I wonder if they drink blueberry smoothies and eat beet salads all day. Number nine. Although the host has said no Googling allowed, some people will still sneak a glance underneath the table. Number ten. How do I control my face when the table next to me high fives and squeals after discovering they got another round correct? This is an invaluable skill that I guess I'll eventually learn. <laughs> and number 11, I should have known that Edgar Allan Poe was born in Boston, although he lived in Baltimore. I am a poet, for God's sakes. <laughs> All righty, now I think I can transition into one of these next poems. Um, <laughs> now the students are, you know, now my personality is known to be to the room here. Um, so this poem that I'm going to read, uh, it's a little bit long here, I'll try to quicken it up, I have one more after this one. Um, it's called The Harley Dream. This poem was created when I was at a uh, writing residency, when I was in New Smyrna Beach, Florida, at a Fine Arts Work Center. Um, this poem, basically, uh, when we were doing writing, one of our, um, Mentors told us to go outside and find something in the street that we could write a poem about, right? Um, so I saw this really uh, hunky black guy driving down the road, and I thought, oh, he'd make for a good poem, right? <laughs> this, is, this is sort of a fantasy. This is my fantasy poem about him. My husband, don't, don't be mad. Okay, uh, it's called A Harley Dream. 
It is hot fudge topping dripping over shining silver piping of the Harley. Tattoos decorate bulky cocoa arms like freckles on a map that make me want to sell the world. My eyes drive north to an avocado-colored bandana that probably covers a slick, bald head shining like daddy's Sunday shoes. Juicy lips peek out from underneath a broom-like mustache filled with black and gray rattlesnakes, the ones that strike silently and prey on a girl like me. His bike careens down the highway, which becomes a long strip of salty bacon that stretches on with no end in sight, past Stella's Skyline Cafe, where the other Daytona bikers convene, attached to their stringy-haired wives with tugboats and dose ecky beer bottles inked on their breasts or ankles. I wonder, would you clean me your Cinderella, rescue me from a life of torturous toil? We could traverse down I-95, stopping along at Scottsmore, rest at a seedy motel where a blazing neon orange sign would wink at us. Our room would be filled with pot smoke, strewn for party bottles, and various leather sex contraptions. <laughs> I would dye my afro violet and get everything below the navel pierced and only call my parents at rest stops where the bathroom's reeks of piss left longer than the shriveled in call me numbers. We would continue this for days, eventually reaching Miami's nape when I would notice my monthly moon markers missing. You'd grumble grisly objections, but deep down I'd know we'd just turn right back around, repeating our reckless, world-down wonderlust. I'd try to put the cancer sticks, the liquor, my appetite for threesomes, and settle into the newness of my belly full with a carbon copy you. I awake from this dream, rocking, turning into the thin, vain dirt road of my temporary new home, thinking, what if I had sprung from the car, mounted myself behind you, pressed my best breast to your back, the gas fumes tickling my nose hairs, the vibration of the machine pleading, and who would care as long as those yellow dashes would skip down the road, dotting and dashing like Morse code forever. Thank you. Um, and this last one um, is an odd, we have lots of poems in the book about all kinds of things. We have uh, poems about bad housekeeping, mice in people's houses, uh, Terry's got a liver in my underwear poem, uh, Tabisha's uh, got cheating poems. There's all kinds of stuff in here for every person who's in the audience. So we're hoping that uh, reading these poems tonight, you will buy a copy of the book. Um, and this last one that I'm going to read is uh, definitely about a wardrobe misfunction, but it's also about my obsession. I'm born in Indiana. Um, in Indiana, everybody should know the weather is cold, ice cold, and I wear lots of long john bottoms, right? So this is also a semi-list poem, and it's called 13 Reasons Why I Love Long John. Long John Bottoms offer the option to go commando. They make me feel like Irene Cara for fame. They are a warm tub before leaving for school or work, and since I'm neurotic about being appropriately dressed for function, they are easily an extra outfit option. When my flannel pajamas aren't clean, I do occasionally sleep in them. My blue jeans don't rub in the middle when I wear Long John Bottoms. And all the ladies know that these things prevent unworthy men from getting to the goods too quickly. My long john bottoms, made by Cuddly Duds, have a silk finish that helps me slide up and down, slide up and down hardwood floors with ease, like a seven-year-old whose parents aren't home. And this pseudo-child loves the quiet swish sound they make when my thighs kiss in between. And plus, they make my butt look bigger, and who couldn't use a little extra help in that department? <laughs> 
with long john bottoms on, my sometimes unshaven legs are an even bigger secret to the world. These winter saviors come in black, white, or nude, and I simply love being able to say I have on nude pants. But mostly, long john bottoms remind me of my ex and our visit across the pond and us loving in Kensington hotel room where he couldn't wait to pull them off. And without further ado, I would like to uh, introduce uh, our next selected member coming to the microphone. Her name is Cathisha Edwards, and she is having a chapbook published in the fall called Bloodlet. She's also one of the most fashionable people I probably uh, know in my life. She loves uh, Easter hats, and I'm excited to introduce her to Cathisha Edwards. Thank you. I'm trying to make the Easter hat famous, so tweet it, Easter hat, hashtag. Um, so don't get stuck on that, okay? But people's husbands like me. <laughs> like, it's, like it's a thing that happens. This, is, this poem is about two men who I met, one of whom I didn't know was married because he was so young in the face. I was just like, oh, we're the same age. He couldn't be married. And he was married and had a baby. And so I promptly never spoke to him again. Um, I shunned him. I was like, don't talk to me. But this is called Husband. Husband. What if the woman whose husband I want to pluck cuts my throat and glitter rushes out over her hand? A sea of shine. And what if the husband I want to pluck stands next to the woman who holds the knife covered in glitter and says nothing about the soft that is minuscule pieces of plastic? Trillions of pieces of plastic, bounding out of my cut carotid artery, like children loose after eight hours of cramming their torches under desks at the threat of a bomb, or a gun, or the bomb, not high on sugar, salt, sun, but on amphetamine, and the elasticity of their own legs. What if the husband of the woman who washed the glitter off of her hands only touched me once? And it wasn't a touch, it was a hug. And it didn't really last that long because the husband in question is not a wolf, and he loves the woman he calls his wife, and I need him to be a good man. And he needs to be a good man too, because we fucked up by talking about God, and now there's a guilt that makes it fun. Except he really does believe in God, and really wants to lick every molar, really wants to lick every molar in the roller rink of my mouth. What if they bury me under their jungle gym of a birch tree? What if the slitting of my throat is a team-building exercise, and when someone that can only be him taps my shoulder to hide the oncoming edge of shine, I shiver like light volleying off of a disco ball, and yes, that felt a bit random, but let's run with it, because that's what wanting a married man in one after-school sugar rush dash. What if I am trouble? I mean, what if I am bad news? And the wanting of a married man is a vitamin deficiency I have no interest in curing. He does another poem that's about him, it's fine. <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk about it. Okay, so, huh, um, I wrote this poem at the Vermont Studio Center um, back in 2015? We're going to say at the end of 2015. It's called Baby with a House Dude. And um, I, was, I was in a relationship with this guy, and you know, it was like a constant struggle to get him to eat me out because it it's such a great experience. Um, 
take my word for it. So basically, <laughs> I ended up writing this super long poem that was just like, dude, get with it. So this is my dude, get with it poem. It's called Baby What That Mouth Do. Translation. Can you please lick my vagina tonight? Which is another way to say, I hope you don't mind I didn't shave because I didn't want a razor that close to my clit. Code for, I'm trying to rebel against the, the patriarchy, capital letters, and someone on Yahoo Answers told me this is a great way to start. A euphemism for, this will determine if I need to break up with you, so licking my vagina is pretty monumental to the future of our relationship, implying deep thought about our relationship has occurred, but does not mean I don't like you tremendously, only that I have options, underscoring the fact that I am 24 and unmarried, underscoring the fact that I am not my mother, I did something different, circling back to the fact my family probably didn't think different included fluoxetine, polyamory, and black feminist socioeconomic theory, but I know this is what they'll say. She was always a strange one. This is what happens when you send girls to school, which is just a thing my family must deal with. That thought provides me with great joy in times of drought, wherein drought is an opaque way of me mentioning my not-too-long-ago mental breakdown, something that may or may not still be in progress, although it should be noted I did not die. Morbid thought, sure, but necessary, as it is a justification for this poem, which was written in spite of, and not because of, a, a momentary lapse in productivity. That last clause being an example of how a body can sometimes be regarded as a machine. Also an allusion to my distaste towards the ever-earnest Protestant work ethic. But, in all fairness, may just be a manifestation of my innate laziness. Which is not the worst thing if you think about it. And while you think about it, give me your hand. Touch my slippery slip. See your darling Nikki's love unfurl. All this love uncoiling just for you. So this last one is called hashtag not your model survivor. Again, don't park here. Don't, don't, it's not sad anymore. I went to therapy, I'm over it. But I was sexually assaulted in 2015. And what I found was people tried to make me this kind of like tragic figure. And I was like, no, sex is still lit. You know, life is still amazing. I worked through it. I went to therapy, I took meds, I, I meditated, I prayed, I did a whole bunch of shit. And so I wrote this poem as a kind of way to resist that narrative that people were pinning on me. So it's hashtag not your model survivor. I'm afraid to press charges. Hashtag I refuse to wear panties so you'll notice how firm this ass is because I'm always in the gym. Hashtag insomnia. My PTSD acts up at night and spooky squats will tighten just about anything. I don't make eye contact with Salvation Army Sidewalk Santas. Hashtag you can't scam me. Hashtag I'm not new to this. I make prolonged eye contact with your partners in Whole Foods, which none of us can afford to shop at. But my psychiatrist said I need to something, something, something to help my depression. Hashtag kale and quinoa for all. I skip therapy to get pedicures. Search strap-ons for sweet women on a stranger's borrowed phones. I keep a Rolodex of fake names for the men who chat me up in airports. Latest name, Giovanni. Hashtag, won't pretend I'm sorry. Hashtag, I bought myself a diamond so they'll still miss a wedding ring. 
That's right. I'm one of those bitches who buys himself diamonds. Hashtag Elizabeth Taylor taught me. <laughs> I show pictures of my cousins from the 90s on Super Shuttle and indiscriminately quote Bebe's kids. Once, I kicked a small child out of a bounce castle. A literal kick. I think I hate children. This might not be the case. More data is required. I stopped wanting to be a mother, then broke up with Jesus. It was a me thing. Hashtag not him. This morning, I drank wine for breakfast. So, what I'm saying is, I have no encouraging words to give you. Clearly, I fucked up somewhere, and I wouldn't listen to me if I were you. Thank you. So, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, Prince aficionado Terry Cross Davis, who is the author of Paint. Mother of two, wife of one, and the poetry coordinator at the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. Good evening. I'm petite, not short, petite. It's a difference. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so we have to get this a little closer. Okay. This is um, for the first time I've read any of these poems to an audience, so yay. That time I put liver in my pants. My mother knew my sister and I hated liver. Still, she tried to feed her children the cheap vitamin-rich organy. She'd smother its death smell in a cast iron skillet, surrounded with a waste of heavenly bacon, onions, anything to make it palatable to the picky birds that were her daughters. After our nurses turned up, she asked, did you cook it? Then she delivered the hard line, y'all gonna eat what I cook. But liver was a deal breaker, followed closely by Oprah's mucus and the crimson torture of beets. Dinner became a dance of forks, a little hide and seek under bread crust, some twirling and mashed potatoes, some accidentally scraped under the plate's rim, only a few bites making it past our gratuitous gag reflexes, until one fortunate escape of time found liver chunks delivered neatly into my lap, and my hands quickly swirled those putrid squares into my panties. The mass of unwedded bathroom bricks quickly added another escaper for the fed meat, but smart parents realized after three allowed trips to the bathroom, a third of liver was still left to eat. So it was a garble unfinished to a mouthful, a surreptitious spread through the kitchen adjacent garage door, and the gray meat was neatly deposited into the first empty container I could find, a blue solo cup in the windowsill. So days later, when the liver had grown friends of the squirming, sightless white kind, my father asked, what's that smell? Under the feigned innocence, I rejoiced. A clean giveaway never smells so foul. <laughs> so this is a list poem. After hearing your uh, your poem, I'm like, okay, yeah, all right, all right, we're gonna do this. We're gonna do this, people. <laughs> Shit ain't that simple. I believe that what doesn't kill you had better make you stronger. I believe that strength ain't necessarily seen from the outside. I believe violence is rarely the answer, but some people deserve a good ass woman. 
I believe there should be a department of peace. I believe that no person has the power to break you unless you give up that power. I believe love is about knowing when to break down the barriers you put up for the rest of the knucklehead hard legs. I believe that a lady should know how to curse properly. I believe that a lady should know how to get into a car in a short skirt. I believe in God's opening car doors. I believe a woman should know how to drive safe. I believe in niggas. I believe there's a difference between niggas and black folks. I believe you should keep a little of that crazy nigga inside you for special occasions. <laughs> I believe in table manners. I believe they're in front of the TV and by candlelight. I believe in chopping wood for real fires. I believe in axes over a gun any day. I believe in getting dirt literally under your nails. I believe that trying to figure out who you are is a worthy life ambition. I believe one monkey don't stop no show. I believe crying over a book means it was a good book. I believe you mess with my kids, you mess with me. I believe in waiting to the last minute. I believe in the power of revision. I believe that there will be still something of me left on the page before I die. So this is the last one. So we did this thing, and this was Celeste, brilliant. I get to see But we responded to the work of some of our other collective members, and so there's a poem preceding this in the book called Harriet Tubman is a Lesbian by Saeed Agassiz. So I responded to Saeed's poem with this poem, Knowledge of the Brown Body. If Harriet Tubman had been a lesbian, I would know the brown body had been valued outside of child to the point of risk. I would know when Ebony Nibble spoke his hushed volumes from inside another sweet brown mouth, eager to know its secrets. I would know a brown belly had been showered with a free tongue's wholesome intention. I would know the brown hips of a woman were stolen back for freedom's sake. I would know that brown thighs thunder was enough to make a woman walk into the abyss of the deep south and come out fighting on fire with black love. I would know that this body I owned had once been coveted for its sake and its sake alone. How sacred I could hold that knowledge. I could palm it. My fingers deep inside the agent that helped break the back of the Confederacy. Thank you. transcription of her notes in her phone, uh, which is pretty incredible, and I wish I would think of that. Um, but my notes in my phone are like a very personal hieroglyphic. I can't decipher them the next day. Like, if Mike and Ian, the publishers at Mason Jar, asked me, I'd be like, like, the Japanese couldn't even crack that shit. Uh, so, without further ado, Michelle Juno. Thank you. Um, 
So, okay, first, can you hear me? Because I tend to wander away. Um, so, I tend to often over-explain uh, what seems to be pretty straightforward prose. Um, so, I'm not going to do that because it's pretty straightforward prose. <laughs> and I just believe in knowing your strengths. And this clearly isn't mine. Um, also, I didn't budget time for it. So, also, on the budgeting time front, you don't have to clap after everyone because some of them are just online. And then it'll be more about you than it is about me. These are the notes for my phone. 9:37 a.m. We often picture an outcome and work backwards from that vision. But creative creativity is about working forward, not necessarily having a concept of where you're going. 3:21 p.m. Grocery store. There's a man yelling at the milk. Little girls are cutting me off. Another man is yelling about how he might be sick this weekend, talking about on the phone about a very personal thing. A woman slaps her child, and my eyes tear. I take on the self-checkout, where machines announce everything I'm buying and the associated costs. 11.58 p.m. What I really want to know is how I end up. What's the end of the story? But here's the thing. Maybe I don't actually want to know. Maybe none of us really want to know. Because I've known I'd fall in love with a man or two or three who didn't or couldn't or thought he shouldn't love me back. I might never have loved at all. And then where would I be? Growing up is critical. Knowing how it will end should be avoided. Because hope is what we run on. And without hope, we'd all be lost. Okay, this is the only one I'm going to over-explain. Um, so, pro tip. If you're going to write a book and publish it, and a lot of it is about how gross breakups are, don't go through a breakup while you are promoting said book. <laughs> it's very humbling to have people quote your words back at you. Like, you're going to be fine. This is great. I know. <laughs> um, so I think this is the only breakup line I'm doing because it fills me with self-loathing. Okay. 2.57 a.m. Lord, I'm tired and I'm awake again. I'm exhausted from insomnia at night and I'm never fully awake during the day. I want to take comfort in you, rest in the fact that you have a plan for me. Rest in your grace and deep love for me. Rest in the fact that those feelings and desires and misunderstood heartache will go away soon. But how will it go away if I don't let go of it? I feel myself clinging to it, fist wrapped tight around something I thought you'd given me to protect, to guard, and trust. What's the point of trusting or working at that, of really breaking down walls, if it's now all crashed down around my feet? What lesson about love should I draw from that? How do I understand you in that shattered place? Am I broken only to know that I need you? Is that what this is about? I want to understand. I want to follow and trust and love you in all things. I want this rejection to be removed from my memory. I want the pain to stop rising up in my throat when I try to breathe. The days are fine. I'm busy with tasks. My heart forgets that it's broken. My heart forgets that it is not wanted by the one I want. Even saying it now, I see the problem. You cannot be with someone who doesn't want you. 
And so then there's this little battle between my heart and my head, knowing the truth, knowing the truth, and not feeling the warm comfort of either. I'm living in this disconnected place where my head wants to praise you for all the good you've done, believing and trusting in the promise you've honored time and time again, first with the Israelites and so often in my own life. But I am not there. My journal show prayer after broken prayer, many without much thought of you at all. They show me what I couldn't see when I wrote them. Hope was around the corner. There would come a time when I wouldn't always feel this way. My head has seen what you do with time, but my heart's memory is short. So here I am, awake, exhausted. I'm fighting everything, including sleep, because the quiet reminds me of all that isn't. My body feels crumbled by the weight of exhaustion and want and a deep need to understand. Lord, I need your real, physical embrace. I need your arms, your soothing voice. I need you in my humanness. My head and my heart are battling it out, and they're too busy with one another to lull me to sleep. So I'll breathe, Lord. I'll concentrate on that peace because it's the only thing I feel sure I know how to do. Forgive my weakness, but can you just do the rest? I'll just breathe, and you do all the rest. Just for tonight, so I can sleep. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> Don't be worried. Um, okay. 9-11 p.m. The 25-year-old list, as written by my friends. Rent a convertible. Learn a new skill. Become fluent in French. Become an aunt. Road trip. Buy a plane ticket the day of. Get engaged. Tattoo. New York. Host a dinner party. Hard reset. Steal something from a restaurant. Letterpress class. Pottery. I did two of those. <laughs> so it's now the 28-year-old list of annotations. 5.03 a.m. I just woke up with a mouse on me, but I'm okay. No, I am not okay. It was on me. I was sleeping on my back on the couch because the bedroom didn't feel safe. I woke up to the pitter-patter of feet across the sheet and freaked out and started screaming immediately. In my effort to swipe him off me, I tangled us both up in the sheet, <laughs> binding my arms. I threw myself off the couch trying to crawl my way out. I don't know what happened to the mouse at that point. I screamed for at least three minutes straight like someone was attacking me. It concerns me slightly that none of my neighbors knocked on the door or called the cops. <laughs> 11.25 a.m. I saw him again. He ran out of my closet. I've cleaned more and put steel wool in the hole. I also got peppermint oil, which is supposed to hurt their little noses, and I plugged in those sonar repellent devices in most of the outlets. They say you only need one per room, but I don't trust it. No sign of him this morning. 8.38 p.m. I have been cleaning around the clock. If I can get everything spotless, I don't think the mouse will want to stay here anymore. He will simply take his little mouse-sized suitcase, mouse suitcase and move on out. Here's what I'm struggling with, though. Is it better for me to see him move out, say in a trap, or for me just to never see him again and assume he's found new digs, but always wonder if he's still there? I don't like hearing him at night, so I've been sleeping with Pandora on to cover any sounds of his little feet or nibbles or jeering. Also, I, also, I have the lights on in my bedroom, 
every corner illuminated just in case. This is helpful, except now that I can't hear him, I'm afraid that I'm going to wake up and he'll be snuggled up to me, his little mouse body cradling the opposite side of the body pillow. <laughs> but I can't lie there in the dark silence, half asleep, waiting for his pitter-patter either. It always comes back to this. Is it better to know or to not know? I'm not one for conversation. I don't like speaking about hard things or the lump that forms in my throat when tears find my eyes. I don't like the way that men's faces change when my eyes tear, effectively steering the conversation to something less than honest, if only to stop the crying. I wonder if the mouse is a guy mouse or a girl mouse. Power just went out. How is this my life? <laughs> now what? I'm in the dark with a mouse who may be agitated by the smell of peppermint. <laughs> I filled the apartment with candlelight. It's actually quite nice. But what if the mouse runs across one and knocks it down and starts a fire? It's totally something he would do. I'm now using my battery-dying phone to play music just to let the mouse know that I'm still awake even though the lights are off. But now I'm feeling a little uncomfortable because it's, there's candlelight and I'm playing music and this is starting to feel like a weird romantic evening with the mouse. <laughs> but maybe he's uncomfortable too and he'll just A plane fell out of the sky, and still the world went on. A day later, my hometown was on lockdown for a bomb threat and a suspicious device in the park where I learned to run. The same small town that only just mourned the kidnapping and death of a pretty blonde girl who was just riding her bike. And a plane fell out of the sky. When there's a school shooting, and there always is, I turn off the news. I don't want to hear about it anymore. I don't want to picture the children I don't have or my nephew's face. I don't want to empathize with the parents who live those nightmares because the small glimpse I have from their tear-stained faces is enough to crush me completely. We are all numb, and more and more we are strangers in a way that we cannot come back from. In a plane, there was a plane that fell from the sky and another one that just disappeared. It disappeared with questions and loved ones, and we buried those people with conspiracy theories and opinions and Facebook statuses that ultimately did nothing for anyone. When I look at the photos, it's not the wreckage that ruins me. When I look at those pictures, I see an abstract installation at an overpriced museum. I can't make those images link back to my mini trips seated on blue delta fabric with strangers and children behind me. The wreckage does not move me. It's the people left behind that cripples. It's the woman who's covering her face with her hands. This is her life. She's a real person, and this is her life now. And watching her grief on the TV in my apartment, alone, on the other side of the world, makes me lonely. Maybe the answer is not to shut her out, not really, but let her and her story take hold of my heart beyond my morning cup of coffee. In a world without faith, I find myself apologizing for it, or tiptoeing around it, confessing silently to God that I do not know how to do better. There's another image of buses carrying relatives of the dead to and from wherever they're going. A holding area? Do they speak to one another? Do they start crying all over again, but this time together? I'm inconsolable when I cry, when I really cry. Is anyone able to console them? 
I remember the sharp-dressed funeral director closing the casket at my grandmother's funeral. I thought there was more time, another hour to work through a lifetime of questions. I couldn't catch my breath, surprised by my sudden grief and unwillingness to live in a world without her voice. There's another picture of all the luggage from the plane, ordinary luggage, piled on top of one another with no one to retrieve them. It reminds me of the shoes piled in a room at the Holocaust Museum. It's all very ghostly, haunting. We work our entire lives for things that we cannot take with us when we go. I'm staring again at the photo woman, covering her face with her hands, wishing I could hug her and tell her she doesn't have to hide her heart. <coughs> Three thirteen a.m. A mouse trumps almost any other problem. <laughs> any and all thoughts or prayers I have about my writing or relationships or lack thereof gone. I am only worried about a mouse tracking me, finding me, transforming into some kind of Amazon anaconda, and eating me. One ran across my person once, so it's basically the same thing. Everyone keeps saying he can't hurt you. The mouse can't hurt you. Ever have a mouse on you? Use your right to an opinion. <laughs> Everything starts to look like mice. Clips on the floor, bookmaking tools, even impossible things. Ink pens, my own feet. <laughs> you challenge everything in your apartment. Wait, whose remote is that? I don't remember that remote. Who put that remote here? I also start blaming him for all my problems. <coughs> He's the reason my internet has been so terrible lately. The reason I can't keep a man. That jerk took my phone charger. Heard a car sort of right outside my window. Mouse. He's ruined bags for me. He's taught me how I deal with fear, though. I let it consume me. I let the what ifs rule who I am. I err on the side of seizing a false sense of control over my life. Forget to tell people like if you're starting to get uncomfortable and want to go, just be like, oh, oh, oh. Okay. Almost 9:17. Right about the heart and longing, and the way we depict this, the physicality of something we cannot touch, but we call it the heart, and the brain, how they are, how they are at war with one another sometimes, but we need both to live. We need both, and we shouldn't settle for them being at war. We should long to give them both up, easier said than done, so they might have a chance at working powerfully together for a glory higher than our own. Twelve thirteen a.m. This is probably the weirdest one, so buckle in. For me, Dreaming has become a platform to experience impossible realities over and over, replaying the outcomes with different variables. The outcome never changes from real life. The dead ones are still dead. The mistakes are still mistakes. But the we, there, it's always a little different. Or it's just in a dream replaying something from my early childhood, something I'm not sure really happened, a restaurant scene with my mother right before I was born. 
I was there in theory, I guess, and so I was able to be there in dream. But the chronology kept skipping like it does in dreams, and now I wasn't watching my pregnant mother, but a pregnant me at the table talking about how I felt. And my body in the dream knows the outcome, or the impossibility of it. My body has never known pregnancy, and so the dream isn't going to end right. I know this in the dream, so I start to look around. Because this is my other trick. I look for the unfamiliar parts, or the slightly off parts. I let the people around me keep talking. I only have a moment before they stop and notice me not playing along. And that's when I felt it. I could feel his eyes on me. One of these things isn't like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. I saw him hiding behind his menu. I smirked, now in on the secret, and walked right up to him. The grandfather I did not get the chance to know. I've known him more in my dreams than I ever did in life now. This silly peekaboo game, that one from when I was three, the only real, although maybe not real, memory I have of him, paired with me as this grown woman. I saw you there, I say. I hug him and he smirks. I found him. This is our game. Time is speeding up, only another moment before the dream catches up, or memory or brainwaves figure out that I know that my brain knows that I'm dreaming and it's time to wake up. Smile for a picture, someone says. It's your birthday. And in the moment, I smiled and reached down to my non-existent belly. My first memories and future hopes and subsequent fears all coming in at the same moment. And I know that no picture of this moment actually exists and can't exist, and it's all about to fall apart. No, I shout, turning back to him and reaching out to shield us from the photo ending. The camera flashes, and I wake off my pillow gasping. Waking up, I know I've had five of those back to back. There was one about being upside down in the snow, trying to find my way to the surface before I drowned, as if in water. One has a boyfriend that perpetually blends with a husband on that side of sleep. And one is just a hall of mirrors, of scenes from my life that are the most dramatic, that play over and over and over, shaping me daily in this pointless kind of movie loop, where different choices, with different choices, but exactly the same outcome. It's annoying, really. It's as if to say, you know why you are this way, right? Of course I know. That's why I don't like to go to sleep. This is the last one. This is one that I have, this is probably the favorite one in the book. Um, thank you, everyone at Pratt Library. Thank you, Tracy. Thank you, wonderful ladies at the Black Lunch Collective. And, um, of course, Lisa Jar for this. 5.45 p.m. Waiting is active. Waiting is a whole body activity. Waiting is preparing, getting ready, ready to move, to sprint. Waiting is a bending at the knees, a bowing in worship. Waiting is today. Today is waiting and being ready, because I have no idea what tomorrow will bring. Tomorrow could be moving. Tomorrow could be running away or toward, but running all the same. And I wonder, will I be ready? Thanks, guys. I was gonna. <laughs> you're stepping on my toes. I was gonna do that. Yes. Um, it would be great if we could have the author's comments at the table here. <laughs> at this point, uh, this is where we turn the spotlight onto you. Imagine a giant spotlight which would be shown directly on you. We're going to have the question and answer part of the program. Um, 
So thank you to everybody. Uh, I love that. Uh, my name is Matthew Paul, for those who are keeping track at home. Uh, I have a book through Mason Jar as well. It's a book of poetry. It's called Nihilus Kitsch, and that's what it's about. Uh, if you'd like me to read a poem from that book, come find me and buy me a cup of coffee. I'll read one to you. This, this is not about me. I'm going to try to get out of the way. I do have one uh, question to start this off. And I'm going to address this to Celeste as the editor, but you know, the rest of you can answer as well. And I'm curious about the way that this book presents itself as a collaboration. I think that's really neat. I think that's a really useful thing for us to have in our culture right now is more people collaborating and you know, being self-facing. But I'm curious about the process of that and how you, I guess, how did it go deciding whose work to include and the, the collaborative element of bringing all of these um, okay, uh, about the collaborative process. Um, the idea actually, as I sort of stated earlier, originally came in panel form. So we actually proposed a panel um, talking about um, laughter, humorous poems. Um, it got accepted at Split This Rock Festival, or which happens in DC. And so all of us, uh, a couple of us didn't read, but actually many of us all participated in the panel. So I guess that's the original how the collection, the idea for the collection sort of came together. Um, in terms of who's in the book, um, it's all, everyone who's in our collective, there are six of us. And so um, all of us had poems that were funny or humorous or talked about sex or talked about joy and laughter or cheating husbands or, you know, all of these sorts of things. And um, I was sort of the, I feel like I was the musical coordinator or maybe the curator, right? You know, so it was sort of my job just to really, like, place them so that they were having conversation with one another. And Terry also mentioned um, she liked the idea or that we responded to each other's poems. That was primarily Michael Tager's um, idea. And so what we did is just each one of us responded to someone else in the book. Um, you know, the idea is that um, the collaborative process is really powerful, and I think, you know, uh, this, as I continue to say, this current political climate, we need more collaboration. We need more um, people working together and not uh, divisive tactics. So that's kind of the, the process, I guess you would say. I think the ladies feel like, I don't know, but, uh, that's my two cents. Thank you. I have, a, I have one question for Michelle as well. Um, at what point did you decide that this was going to be a book, and how did you feel when you realized that you could actually make a book out of a bunch of stuff that you come? People laugh because they know I'm still not on board with it. Um, so I I found it on a plane when I was trying to delete because I needed space for more photos, and realized that I had a five-year time capsule of my life that was very embarrassing. Um, it wasn't like a glamorous thing. And so I made the mistake of telling a friend, hey, I found this really embarrassing thing. And he was like, okay, that's awesome. You should keep that. And I did. Um, and so two years later, they had a press and said, we'd like to publish that. And I, I was on board with it until we read the first draft. And I was like, I don't think this is a good idea. I think we should not do this. Um, but luckily, Mason Jar and having editors that are very objective helped make it not just a diary of an angsty 20-year-old girl. Um, and so at some point when we started crafting the arc of it, I, I feel like I'm finally on board with this being a book. 
Um, that's a terrible answer, well, but is, so that's I hope, I hope you're today. Okay. Today is one one of the Let's take some questions from folks in attendance.
because I often think that um, writers are too close to our own works, right? You know, so even what Tapisha is saying about um, you know editing, take one thing off. You know, it's hard to take off a scarf before you leave the the, leave the house. You know, it's hard. I'm often connected to the scarf, right? But if someone else looks at your at your work and says, "Hey, this line totally messes up the flow of the poem," right? So you need you need really good people uh, in your life who are are also editors for you, whether it's a partner or spouse or a friend from an MFA program or someone that you trust. You need other people who can look at your work. That's really one of the things that I think is important. Yeah, I think for, for this collection, that was really great, having Ian and Mike for me. Of We looked at 500 notes, and 300 of them were doing the same thing that three were doing. So then we were like, what's your best three that accomplishes the same thing? People don't need 500 notes that you're sad. Yeah. One will do. So, yeah, having a helpful eye is helpful. So the young lady over here asked, "Will I be able to do it?" Uh, oh, I'm sorry. The young lady here asked, "Will I be able to do a writing group uh, at Morgan State University?" Sure, I will. I will say I take that challenge on. I also teach uh, creative writing. I teach it usually at least once a semester. This semester, actually, I'm teaching fiction, oddly, but usually I'm teaching uh, poetry, and in all my poetry classes, we at least do um, some sort of writing revision inside of the class workshop element. But yes, I would be willing to, uh, if you if you champion and, and organize, I'd, I'd love to, I'd love to do that. <laughs> That's my response. I was wondering if your relationship with Seth Mouse has increased or decreased since the I have moved. Okay. <laughs> 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 I'll ask the question. I'm really interested in your relationship with your phone and the way you diarize what your phone shifted now is the kind of way to sort of become something. So that is like an excellent question. So this is what I'm actually trying to work through right now. I have, I essentially, like I didn't realize that this was a personal journal, right, this tool. And then I essentially gave it to the world. Um, and I, great, cool, sell some books. Um, it's, it's made me very self-conscious in my most personal, at my most personal time. So like waking up in the middle of the night from insomnia at the store. Um, and so I've actually had to develop, just on a personal level, some other journal techniques because of this, and kind of in this weird place of like, what does it look like to publish kind of your coping mechanism and kind of have that stripped away. So I kind of took my own feet from out from under me, and I'm in that kind of like, well, this is weird. Um, yeah, so it has changed it, and I think will change me as a writer moving forward. I'm not quite sure what to do with it now. Um, but I'm okay. That actually raises an interesting question for me. Um, all of you are writing clearly out of your own experience in this very direct and often raw way, and I'm wondering whether you ever feel uncomfortable. Is there ever a time where you're like, I've gone too far, I can't talk about that? Or where do you draw that line, if at all? Um, I don't. <laughs> um, 
been writing for so long that if I don't draw from the most of my life, I'll get blocked. Um, so as soon as I start to very like wander into territory that isn't a part of my lived experience, not saying that everything is explicit, like obviously my blood is plasma and not glitter, right? But you know, if I were if I were to say like, oh, I hadn't been assaulted in 2015, right, and I had tried to kind of omit that from my body of work, I think I wouldn't be able to access some of the some of the joy that came from that experience in the aftermath of me like really working to kind of heal and recover. You know, I would be I would be lost to parts of language and ways of thinking and ways of reading my poems and ways of looking at the page that. Um, yeah, so I don't think, and nothing is off limits to me because it's me. Now, some people may not want to read it because it's so raw, and I think that's a reader's right, but I'm just like, I'm not ashamed of anything. You know, this is why I also don't kind of involve my parents in my work. I'm just like, y'all might not want to come to this reading or buy this book because you're going to be offended or something. You're going to be like, when did this happen? Like, I don't know, where were you? So, you know, I just, you know, it's, it's for me and it's of me. Um, yeah, I think, I think being authentic is really important to me because otherwise why would you write memoir? Like, I just can't really figure out why I would do this. Um, I think the hard part is when having friendships of, you know, going through this breakup and you're just kind of a mess. And someone told me, like, and they meant well, they were like, Oh, just write it all down. I can't wait to read this next book. And I was like, Oh, this is my real life, though. Like, it's not weird. So that's weird, um, but good, I suppose, for her. Like, it, you know, it's just kind of a weird line of when you're like, Here's my life. Do with it what you will. Um, but I do still think it's important to balance being authentic. So, yeah. I think that. Uh, a good thing when you when you're nervous about something that you wrote, I think that's just when you know that it's good, um, and to kind of trust that, and then drugs and alcohol help. Yeah. Let's just jump in. So there was a time last summer I was at the Virginia Center for the Creative Arts, and I wrote a poem. Um, and I got to the last line and I was crying and I had to stand up and walk away. It hurt so bad. And I just thought, okay, then that's, that's the real me. I hit the meat and that's what I needed to do. And so sometimes I need those poems that really dig in and get to the tender parts and just expose it to the air. And that's how you heal. And that's how it works for me. And my note about that is that I just think um, I'm always kind of using my students and telling my students that um, there have been a long line of people in the lineage of, of writing who have already done what we are doing. So I think that's really important to remember too. You know, I'm a big fan of professional poets all the way back to Clapp and Sexton and Lowell um, and all the way forward to Sharon Olds and Lucille Clifton. And if these women can talk about having abortions or if they can talk about um, you know, having mental breakdowns, or if you know, Plath and talk about how much she hates her father. You know, I mean, all of these sorts of things. If they can write these poems, then what I'm doing is just a drop in the bucket. I feel like it's just a pebble in the water, you know, so to speak. Because I feel like there have been a lot of 
more famous people um, who have done uh, confessional poetry or narrative poetry or introspective poetry about all of the subjects that are in probably all of our books. So I think you know it's important to remember the history and just remember that um, someone else has gone before you and opened up the door, so now you can stand happily in your little space. One more question. Yes. Uh, if each of you could express some love, someone you're reading and want the world to know about right now, uh, who would that person be? Um, it would be the poet Niira Wahid. Um, really, really dope poet in the same school as uh, Warshan Shire. Um, Warshan Shire having done the screenplay for Lemonade, so check out your poets across the pond. They're doing like super big things. You know, Beyonce is reading poetry, Solange is reading poetry, so you know, big ups, big ups to them. And I love their work and the way that they, um, the way that they're using language is. When I was in workshops, I was often pulled up my my work. Flowery and you know what are all these images and it's super abstract and so they kind of double down on that aesthetic and so I find it really really pleasing and lovely. This is gonna sound planted, but I'm reading without not without our laughter. And I just <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't know that was not it's just really good. And you just, should as well. It's all just really really good. I just highly recommend. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a great plug, that's what says Michael in the back, it's a great plug. Um, I don't know, I mean, I'm always simultaneously reading so many people. Um, I'm going to shout out someone who um, is not probably, is a really emerging writer, her name is Shannon Ward, she is an ex-colleague uh, of mine um, in, my, in my MFA program, her, um, her chapel, she actually doesn't have a full collection out, it's called Blood Creek. Um, she's born in Ohio and she writes about um, the bleakness of the Midwest and also growing up in a very dysfunctional family and also living uh, next door to a slaughterhouse. Um, so it's really odd, you know, the smell of like blood and, you know, screaming parents and all kinds of really, I guess, tragic, I guess it's a tragic book. Um, but anyway, Shannon Ward and the name of the um, chapbook is called Blood Creek. I wrote the poetry series, so I'm always reading, and um, I'll just give you Real quick couple. Um, I gotta shout out my boy Tam Jess. His OVO just won the Pulitzer, and it's an incredible book. Um, with these poems between the catch and twist, and they still read his poems. I mean, the man is no joke. And um, I'm gonna mispronounce his name. Kaveh uh, Akbar, Portrait of the Alcoholic, uh, had had me reeling um, and fighting back tears on the metro the other day. Yeah, all right. And uh, Paisley Redfield's Imaginary Vessels. I love her um, Mae West poems in there. And um, yeah, I guess I'll just leave it at that. Oh, and of course, my husband. He has a book. And you know, it's funny, I wrote an introduction to um, this poet for Monday, and I actually quoted his book title, Letter I Wonder. And I said, because my husband, he's a feminist, he's all against toxic masculinity, he's a great nurturer, he's a great cook. Does the laundry, you know, all these things. Yeah, I'm bragging. He's awesome. He's cute too. Um, I like him. Oh, I'm cute. <laughs> 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 I have reading a lot of nonfiction right now, like the true crime crap. Um, garbage. Um, but I like the uh, I like the poet Kyle Dargan. Um, I like his work a lot. Yeah. Okay, I know it's been a long evening. Very nice to hang out with us. Um, but 
this is our little mason jar family, uh, and a little dysfunctional, but we love each other, right? Um, so we have a new member to our dysfunctional family who's coming. Uh, we're going to publish his new book, and it didn't feel right to have an evening with Mason Jar Press, but now introducing him. So Dave K, um, over here. Do you want me to stand? Yes. Uh, so we're going to be publishing his book. It'll be out in the fall. It's hover on really somewhere here. Yeah, right here. Be working for me. And Dave was just going to give you a little sneak peek as we uh, were getting the ready for print. So um, this is uh, Dave's new book that's going to be coming out from Mason Jar in fall. Thank you. Um, do you mind if I use the podium? Please do. All right. You can stand next to me if you want. Okay. <laughs> Or not. <laughs> I sweat through my new arm already. Your, your, your aura is water. overwhelming, and I feel like. So is my enchanting musk, my friend. <laughs> Settle in. Because uh, my, my book, yeah, which is coming out later this year through Mason Jar, is called uh, The Long Ribbon Rides of Count Vergato. The original title was even less subtle than that. So. <laughs> Um, and I, I realize it sounds like kind of a silly book, and in a way it is, but it's also also at the same time a very bleak and depressing book. So uh, I will close out our evening by inviting everyone here uh, to be weird and sad together as a community. This is the segment of the book. At the top of a carpeted staircase, you open the door to find a brick wall behind it. Those women are singing. You can hear them. Their voices are as boundless as the wind. You imagine a gray, dust-swept heaven where angels bend over adding machines to calculate the folly of a life such as yours. Your life as you know it then, your lonely life, balled up and tossed into the hearth. You kick the wall, slap your palms on it, yelling that you are trapped. No one answers. You doubt they even heard you. The others, prisoners themselves, are too busy tearing into the Count's endless reserves of contraband. You walk back down the stairs as singing fills more of the air around you. You enter a hallway with black walls covered by thick red draperies accented with gold stitching. You try a door that was locked earlier, hoping for a miracle. You should know better than to hope. Stealing yourself as your body goes dark with pain and fatigue, you summon enough gumption to take a run at the door and put your shoulder stump to. Seven times you do this. Seven times the door resists. Your shoulder hurts so much you almost can't feel it. An eighth time it starts to give, it being the door. You throw yourself at the door, not bothering to brace for impact, hoping that sheer physics will be enough. Your eleventh try at the door knocks it loose from its hinges. You kick it the rest of the way and fall into a somber parlor, its walls the color of dark walnut. Two helix pillars twist up between floor and ceiling, and tall, narrow windows allow some light to spill onto the floor. The glass panes are patterned with strange geometrical shapes. They will not open. A suit of clothes has been tossed over the back of a threadbare divan towards the back of the room and you put it on. You have to roll up the trouser legs. Footsteps and voices travel up the hallway outside, and without considering the matter further, you hurl yourself through one of the windows, rolling through the fall as best you can. Jumping is the hard part. Falling is easy. When you fall, you are a note held by a skilled musician, beautiful for a rare and fleeting moment. 
You land hard trying to spread the impact across your back and shoulders. You shrivel into a fetal position, coughing and trying not to choke on the blood filling your mouth. It hurts to breathe. The land here isn't altogether different from where you grew up. A brick wall in the distance cuts off your view, but you can smell rain and loose earth and stump, which you've never disliked. There are pleasant, these are pleasant contrasts with the stink of stale marijuana smoke and liquor and sweat and death emanating from you now. Somehow, you are walking. The ground is one huge snarl of weeds that hide shallow divots and rocks. Every breath causes a fire in your lungs, and yet you gulp down air damning the pain it causes you. Every few steps, you look up at the walls of this house, which wax and wane with no regular pattern. The dark bricks pull in any sunlight that hits them and let none escape. It is a vast, menacing fortress that cuts a jagged line against the soft clouds overhead. The weather is mild, and you make sure to step into every shard of sunlight you find on the ground. At last, a door appears at ground level, set into the rear wall of what looks like a large shed connected to the house. You almost fall on it. Not knowing how much time you have left until someone from the Count's entourage navigates the house's confusing network of stairwells and finds you, you open it. Look, write that sentence up. You see the black steam coach from the night you were abducted. Blood surges into your fist. You look around the shed, seeing nothing but cinder block and board shelves full of dirty steam coach parts and greasy rags. Looking under the coach, you find a rusty wrench and smash open one of the cabin windows. You and the man sleeping inside are both startled. He was stretched across the cabin's velvet cushioned bench, and you find him in a disheveled state. His shirt is unevenly buttoned and untucked. His trousers are backwards, and his collar is smeared red. He's been half your height with uneven side whiskers. Get me out of here, you say. Who are you? he asks. You're not supposed to be here. He shoves the door open and knocks you back onto the shed's loose gravel floor. Help me. Say, please, I need to get out of here. You stand up, clutching the wrench tight in your only hand. You're not allowed in here, he says. You're not allowed outside. There's no way they let you outside. How did you get in here? Help me. You squeeze the wrench. It, like you, is an instrument of abject, flailing stupidity in the control of something malicious, malevolent, and larger than itself. If it had eyes, it, too, would mistake the howling, empty void surrounding it for the presence of a god. Thank you very much. There we go. Thank you. I just wanted to say, hashtag, we just kiss your hands. Thank you. Books. Books. Uh, thanks, everybody. We buy books. We have to pay for the uh, rental of the space and the tablecloth. <laughs> he did a better job of it than I could. But thank you so much for coming out. Uh, thanks to all, all, all of our authors. And thanks to all of you people. You're all beautiful. And thank you for supporting local literature. Um, we have books out there. Feel free to buy one or all or whatever. Shake some hands. If you buy a book, I'm sure some of the authors will sign them. And... Yeah, if you buy any three, uh, you get a free Dave K in the fall. So, think on that. Thank you, everyone.
This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.